Rebecca. And Lily. And you're listening to Just Ghouly Things. Ooh. <laughs> hey, Boo Things, and welcome back to Just Ghouly Things. And we are your beautiful hosts, Rebecca and Lily. Hey. So, Lily, how has your week gone? What is going on in the life of Lily Baldessari? Okay, so unfortunately, but also fortunately, Keith has not come back into the restaurant. Oh, okay. I mean, not the restaurant. The, the bank. bank. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, he has not come into the bank, although I don't think it's like the last we'll see of him, but he has not come in, so that's good. <laughs> Nothing too crazy has happened, although I do have a story for you that I thought you'd appreciate, but it's okay. like, I it's too much to text because you need like some context for the story. So I'll just tell you now. Perfect. So I was, I went out with just two of my friends. We went to Hoboken, which um, for our non-Jersey boothangs is, uh, it's a city in New Jersey with like tons of like bars and cute little restaurants and like little shops. And my uncle has a bagel store there and all this stuff. And it's just across the water from Manhattan. Like you can see Manhattan from it. You can take a ferry or the path or the train, like all that stuff. It's a so bachelor's Hoboken, paradise. Yeah. <laughs> so we, <laughs> true though, there's tons of like, it's like where people go like to meet other young people. So, mm-hmm. but I just went with my friend because she wanted to watch Sunday football. And I was like, you know, sure. Like, let's, let's go. So we meet up with another friend of hers and we're at like this outdoor bar watching a game and well, first of all, we almost saw a guy on crutches who was like my height, try to fight a six, two bouncer. So that was hilarious. Amazing. Yeah. But then, uh, as we were leaving and we were like trying to figure out, like, did we want to go somewhere else and watch the next game or were we going to just like go back home or whatever? Um, my friend ran into a friend of hers from high school. Okay. So, and he's with like five of his friends, right? So they're like, no, like, let's go watch the next game at this place down the street. So we're like, okay, sure. And I was not crazy about it. Even though we were outside and while we were walking there, we were wearing masks, but I wasn't too crazy about it. But her other friend had left and I was like, okay, like we're young women. I'm not leaving her with a guy she knows. And then five strange guys away from home. Like, I'm not about to fucking do that. So I stayed. She gets up to go to the bathroom without just like announcing it. Like, oh, I'll be right back. She just gets up and walks away. And and then I asked her where she was going. She's like, oh, the bathroom. Her friend looks at me and he goes like, damn, that's cold. She didn't even invite you. And like, we all have a laugh. And this guy, like one of his friends who was sitting across from me, looks at me and he's like, he's not wasted, but he's not like, but like he's, I guess, just classic drunk. He looks at me, Rebecca, in the eyes and says to me, you look like you'd be really good at going to the bathroom. (laughs) You know how to squat just right above the toilet. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck does that mean? You have the perfect aim to piss right in the middle of the toilet. Right? Like, you get the perfect stream going. (laughs) You make sure that none of the toilet water hits your butt. (laughs) Exactly. Like, it was just, like, the weirdest. (laughs) And I was just, like, I literally looked at him. I was like, 
thanks man and I just like started like looking at my phone like I was like what the fuck does that even mean and like his two friends who were on either side of him were like dude what what does that even mean like is this like the new pickup lines like I'm so confused I I think he was at the point where he was just like wanted to be in the conversation but he was too like too far gone like he was he wasn't gone enough that he didn't know what we were talking about. Like, he was, in, like, with the conversation, but he was too far gone to, like, put an actual sentence together. <laughs> so he just kind of stumbled through it, and that's what came out. Oh, my God. That is hysterical. Okay, you so wait. Like, was okay, this yeah. the place? Okay, so you went to two places in Hoboken. Yes. You went to Mad Hatter with your friends first, or was that the second? Yes. Okay, so Mad Hatter... Mike's cousin owns that place. No fucking way. Yeah, yeah. I saw you post about it. And I was going to say, oh my God, Mike's Mike's cousin owns that place. Maybe like you could say hi, but like, oh I don't think God, he was working there. Oh my God, you should have told me. We, I just, we saw one of the owners there and like, that's hilarious. I was going to say, wait, does the owner have a butt chin? A butt chin? He was in a mask. I don't know. Uh, oh yeah, true. They have to have masks. Yeah. That but he pop- had like dark hair that was like slicked back. I don't think he slicks his hair back. Which was, like, almost... I mean, it's almost every guy in New Jersey, let's be honest. But... Yeah, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I should should tell you. And then I went to, like, I was going to say, oh, I'll just text Lily later and tell her because she's, like, out with her friends. And then it was just one of those things that I forgot to do. But then you reminded me just now, so, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah, we might... If we go back in a few weeks, I'll be like, hey, uh... Is someone so... Text me his name and I'll ask. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. He's, He's a cool guy. He's cool. Yeah, all the people there were really, they were really cool, really nice, and all that stuff. Anyways, so, so what's our topic today, Rebecca? Would you like to inform our listeners? Oh, yes, yes. But before we start with the topic, I wanted to say, I just posted it on our Instagram. Uh, follow us on Instagram at... Just Goalie Things Podcast. I just tried the pumpkin spice latte this morning. You know how last week I said I was going to try it for the first time before we recorded? Yes, 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 yes. I had to keep to my word, and I tried it. And it is super overrated and overhyped. And I don't get the whole commotion over pumpkin spice lattes during this time of year. I mean, I pretty much could equate it to tasting a Walmart pumpkin-scented candle. (laughs) That's what I I spent $4.29 on eating a Walmart pumpkin candle. I like the smell of pumpkin. I just, I guess just tasting it isn't for me. And I just feel like it's whatever. I'm just going to stick to my iced coffees from now on. Do you think that, because this happened um, with the Popeye's chicken sandwich, Mm -hmm. um, that it's because we were talking about it at work and I've never had it. And my coworker was like, you know what? It's good for what it is. You know, it's good for a $4 sandwich. Yeah. You know, it's not, he's like, it's not this best, you know, the best groundbreaking sandwich I've ever had. And I wonder if, since it was like kind of like the first mainstream pumpkin latte out there, and since it was seasonal, if that was where the hype came from instead of the taste. Because no one really, since it wasn't around a lot, no one had anything to compare it to. Yeah, I think just people see pumpkin spice lots and they associate with fall. And most of us here love fall. So I think it just, it it kind of uh, is under the umbrella of just fall activities. And we're just willing to do whatever to get that fall feel. 
Um, and also, I've never, like I said before, I'm not a big fan of pumpkin pie, but I just, I didn't, I've never tried the pumpkin spice latte, so I couldn't say that I didn't like it, and so I went yeah. in there with a no bias, like, just try it as it is, and yeah, I give my legit authentic reaction on our Instagram story of what I thought about it. It was okay. I mean, I wouldn't go, like I said, I wouldn't go out of my way to buy it again, but it wasn't horrible. If you like pumpkin, yeah, you'll like this. But if you're not a pumpkin person, then this definitely isn't the drink for you. Just, Interesting. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was whatever. And that, <laughs> I saw a meme and it was talking about, uh, it said, y'all, y'all confused of why 2020 is going the way it is, but you guys don't want to talk about how, Last year, we were going ape shit over Popeye's chicken sandwiches, huh? And it's so <laughs> true. Like, this is like God getting back at us for overreacting over a fucking chicken sandwich. I remember seeing a video on, I think, Twitter. And it was like a guy. Like, they had a sign on the microphone at the Popeye's drive-thru that said, sorry, we're out of chicken sandwiches. And there was a guy screaming at the worker there. It's an, I think someone actually got shot, too, or killed over a chicken sandwich. Over a fucking chicken sandwich. You know what? I'm not going to lie. That's some shit that would happen to me. It's not that a- would happen to me, but that I'd see. Oh, for right? sure. For sure. It's freaking nuts. And I feel like now that's going to start becoming a thing um, in McDonald's, Travis Scott Burgers. Which I had, by the way. How was it? I was going to try it yesterday, and I didn't feel like going to McDonald's. How was it? It was pretty. Well, the best part was I was in the car with my mom, so there was, like, this, like, white lady in her 50s and her daughter who looks like she's a child. And she's like, and my mom's like, mm, I'll have a Travis Scott meal. <laughs> and then when they went to Hannah's our food, they were like, Travis Scott. <laughs> um, but, no, it was really – I got it with no cheese. Um, okay. And it was pretty good. It could have used, maybe this is just a location by me, maybe, because I, I hadn't even heard of it. We're in, we were literally in line at McDonald's and my mom's like, hey, Lil. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, who's Travis Scott? <laughs> I was like, oh, well, he's a rapper. Why? And and, she, and she's just like, oh yeah, well, he has a meal here. And I was like, then we're trying it. And I thought I was very upset and the internet is going crazy because they advertise it with a little Travis Scott toy. And it doesn't come with a little, like, I've never listened to a Travis Scott song in my life, so, like, I didn't really care. Um, but, like, they advertise it as a meal that comes with a toy. And it doesn't. It's just for advertisement purposes. Wow, that is false advertising. Make their pockets hurt, Lily. <sighs> Get Mike on the case. <laughs> One foot in all. Honestly, my dad would be like, really, Lil, that's what you want me to do with my son? <laughs> Fucking McDonald's toy, you're 23 years old. <laughs> it's the principal, Mike. Well, I, you know what? And it could be worse. I could have gotten a DWI. Instead, I just want my toy. <laughs> Let me rock. I like that I'm all heated about this situation that hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> you got to get prepared. <laughs> okay okay so we got that out of our system all right i guess i will explain what the topic is today which i'm very excited about i think we're excited about every topic we talk about but yeah. this one is definitely getting us in the mood for spooky kooky ooky season and we are talking about cursed films <laughs> so lily do you want to elaborate like what i mean by cursed films so when we say cursed films, what we mean is um, like 
experiences on set that might have been kind of like spooky kooky yuki um things that happened during or after filming or in pre-production um sightings of spirits like weird coincidences like anything spooky kooky yuki involved in film production yeah so hopefully if you haven't seen these films already these are perfect films to watch during the spooky kooky yuki season and even if you have watched them watch them again now with the new information that you've learned about what happened behind the scenes absolutely all right lil do you want to start us off Oh, uh, yeah, it would be my honor. I am so excited for this. And the, the, uh, the two that you did tell me about, I'm very interested to hear. And then you wouldn't tell me the third one. So I'm, yeah. I'm anticipating it. Okay. So the first one is Annabelle Comes Home. Ooh, okay. So this is an article from therap.com titled, Annabelle Comes Home Was Just As Creepy Off Camera. From moving furniture to nonstop nosebleeds. So, McKenna Grace uh, starts off by saying that she would take photos, who was um, the star of the movie, she would take photos of Annabelle, and every time the photos would come out black. Mm. That's yeah. not a good so, sign. There was a moving piano bench, uncontrollable no- nosebleeds, and an unexplained loss of power in a production trailer. Um, and those are just a few of the eerie experiences that the cast and crew of Annabelle Comes Home had during the shoot. 12-year-old star McKenna, McKenna Grace, who plays the daughter of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warman, Warren, uh, in the movie, had experiences she couldn't explain. Quote, There's a lot, but I'll start with a short one. I woke up one morning and I had this weird small cut near my hairline on my forehead and it was in the shape of a triangle. I was really freaked out and I got really scared because Gary Doberman, who was the director, had told me I was abducted by aliens and I started (laughs) researching. I literally thought I had gotten abducted by aliens. And then there was a creepy coincidence. While Grace was explaining her appearance... She said, experience, sorry, I'm tired, (laughs) experience, she said a car had just passed her and had a picture of an alien on it. No! (laughs) And And she adds that she was just starting with the least scary experience. When all of us were on set together for the first time, the lights went out, and we were all freaking out, asking Annabelle, are you there? Then the lights turned back on, and my nose... And my nose was bleeding so heavily. It happens sometimes because of allergies, but not this heavy. As soon as I left set to get a tissue, it stopped. Oh, no. So Annabelle is definitely, like, probably pissed that she's not getting a cut of the money and the proceeds. Oh, hell yeah. I wouldn't blame her. It's all about me and I'm not getting shit. I'm just stuck in this glass box. I follow Annabelle. There's an, a Twitter account called It's Annabelle Bitch, and I posted a couple of screenshots, <laughs> yes. and I know I sent them to you. I posted them on our Instagram, Just Ghouly Things Podcast. And, oh, my God, fucking following Annabelle on Twitter is, like, the best decision I've ever made. And, like, someone made a Twitter for Robert the Doll and Valak the Nun, and they'll, like, interact oh, with each other God. and, like, have their own Twitter threads. Name a more dynamic trio. I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait. Exactly. <laughs> it's like whoever runs that account, like, is a genius. Marketing God. Honestly, I bow down to them. 
like and like the, she'll just be like like she posted a picture of like bra inserts and she was like laugh my titties in the wind if you see them hit a girl up <laughs> annabelle what annabelle's messy <laughs> messy okay so um the conjuring universe films have a long-standing tradition of inviting a priest onto set to bless the production for Annabelle Comes Home, a priest blessed the set on November 7, 2018. McKenna Grace says he actually did it in the artifact room, and he stood there, and he had this iPad, and he was reading out of that and the Bible, and he was throwing holy water around, and it was really cool to watch. He blessed me and my co-stars Madison and Katie. But the paranormal still had a way of wreaking havoc on Grace and Patrick Wilson, as well as visiting journalists and certain artifacts in the replica of the famed Warren artifact room. According to the production notes, a piano bench in the artifacts room, quote, moved overnight on set overnight on several occasions, though no crew members were working and the stage was locked. Ah, no. Play us a song, you're the piano ghost. <laughs> That's the bad joke of the episode, I think. <laughs> We're peaking early this week. Um, when a journalist visited the set one day, his watch, quote, went haywire with it changing time, speeding up, and jumping ahead hours at a time. But when he put it on the next day, the time was accurate and everything was back to normal. Hmm. She's, um, McKenna Grace also... God, I hate it when my phone does this. When it, like, I I go to scroll and I hold the screen too long and it thinks I'm, like, editing. Oh, that's the worst. I can hate that shit. So, um, she also experienced things like, quote, unexplained loss of power in the trailer, doors that were found open when they had been shut, a shadowy figure asleep in one of the empty rooms on location, and more. She explained that the lights in her trailer didn't work one day, but all the other trailers around her were fine, and that there was a funky smell that went away when everything was fixed. Ooh. Mm. Um, she also had been gifted a rainbow-colored rosary, according to the production notes, and one day when she was wearing it, the crucifix on the necklace fell off and dropped on the floor. Quote, I was wearing it, and all of a sudden it just broke. I had been wearing it all day and nothing happened. It just broke. It was the strangest experience, end quote. Also, according to the production notes, um, quote, during filming, Grace brought a new instant camera to set to take pictures with cast and crew. But every time she snapped a photo with Annabelle in it, it would come out black. And in a photo with Patrick Wilson, a black mark appeared over the cross he was wearing. No! Yes. So she explained further, quote, I brought my camera and I took photos of everyone. And when I would take photos of Annabelle, every time it will come out black. Um, every other photo, though, was fine. I thought it maybe was the camera reflecting the case, but I took photos of her outside of the case. I also took a photo of me, Vera and Patrick and Patrick wears this big cross in the movie. And when I took the picture, the cross was whited out in the photo with black stuff around it. Um, during one safety test run of a scene, a glass case fell over right where she and Eisman, I don't know who that is, were standing. A witch bottle 
Grace received as a gift uh, after wrap started heating up out of nowhere, which made the wax melt off and burn her hand. Ooh. But maybe the eeriest onset experience Grace had during Grace had occurred during the filming of a scene that required Grace and Madison Eisman, oh her co-star, okay, to walk down a hallway where Annabelle herself made an appearance. She says, quote, Madison and I had a scene where we had to walk down a corridor and we heard three knocks on a door, but the camera was rolling, so we kept going, she said. We did it a third time and we heard it again. At that point, I asked Madison if she had heard it and we both thought it was weird. In the first conjuring, three knocks is a sign of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We opened the door and Annabelle was sitting there in a rocking chair. No fucking way. Get the fuck out. Get the fuck, fuck out of here. No. We thought the guys were just messing with us. The next take, we heard the knock again and we opened the door again and Annabelle was gone. <gasps> Where did she go? Girl, who knows? Tijuana, probably. That's what her Twitter <laughs> said. Her, her geolocation said. <laughs> so Grace concludes, quote, personally, I don't know if I believe in ghosts or not. I am torn because there are logical explanations, but there are also things that cannot be explained. The end. Bitch, what do you mean you don't know if you believe in ghosts? Did none of that prove anything to you? Literally, if I was in her position, I'd be like doing TED Talks. I'd be... I'd be speaking at school assemblies being like, yeah, bitch, ghosts are fucking real. Here's Headlining para-unity? Are you kidding me? Yes! Oh, my God. So ridiculous. But, you know, it's okay. So, to be fair, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, 75% of paranormal activity that one may encounter can actually be logically explained. But it's mm -hmm. that 25% that can't be explained. And that's what people are studying. That's what we talk about. That's what we're studying. Why are these things happening that cannot be logically explained? So yeah. I don't think a majority of those situations that you read about in that article have any logical explanation. Why every time a picture of Annabelle was being taken, it was black. The What was it? It was the cross or the crucifix on in the in, yeah, on the, the necklace yeah was, it was blacked out everything else was fine in the picture though yep yeah uh, that that gave me chills i do not like that yeah and when you think about it 25 percent of unexplained occurrences that's that's a lot that's a fuck ton for sure right like that's a whole like okay if you're taught like sometimes you know it's not a lot but of all the paranormal experiences reported, 25% are unexplainable. That's a huge chunk. It's not like it's 80-20 or 99 out of 100. Yeah. 25% is still a significant amount. And it's happened to so many people that this is yeah. something that can't go unsaid. It needs to be explored. It needs to be tested. It needs to be... You know, there needs to be different theories out there to be tested. So, very, exactly. very and weird. I also imagine, like, a movie set like that, right, that's got so much stuff on it, and they're recording, they said, I think, on a soundstage, right? Mm hmm That shit is locked up tight. They have security guards. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the security guards, 
it's not like they're standing like outside of the stage itself. Like they're probably at the gates of the studio, like, you know, sitting in a booth, you know, like they do like everywhere. Right. It'd be very hard for someone to get past them. Exactly. It's hard for someone to get past them to move that piano bench. And it's not like it's them because if they get caught leaving their post, they're fucking fired. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, and if. And there's probably alarms, which, you know, maybe they know how to dismantle. Maybe they don't. But I I don't know. It just doesn't seem like like a security guard would be like, yo, let's go fuck with the Annabelle set. Like, I, I don't know. It just. But then again, I'm not too experienced in Hollywood yet. So who knows? It's still, yeah, so many but weird like, experiences. But, and, and it's the like the culmination of all the things. It's not just the bench. And it's not just the crucifix or the black Polaroids, right? It's mm-hmm. the lights in the trailer, the fucking bloody nose. And I'm someone who gets bloody noses out of nowhere, though. But they're pretty consistent and like she had said it was allergy season but it she said it was much heavier and the fact that it stopped as soon as she walked out you know what i mean it's like even just in that experience there's the 75 percent that can be explained but it's stopping just as she walked out to get tissues there's that 25 percent. couldn't say it better myself thank you all right, Rebecca. Sorry, I've been talking a lot. Your turn. Oh, no. There's a lot more talking to be done, Lily, because I'm going to be talking about The Exorcist. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So this film was released in 1973, and I'm going to read you um, via IMDb their, mm-hmm. uh, th- their plot synopsis. Uh, it's not going to give away the whole the whole movie, because if you guys haven't watched it, I don't want to ruin it for you. But this is just going to give you a very detailed description of what the movie's about. So it starts by saying, separated from her actor husband, Hollywood actress Chris McNeil and her preteen daughter Reagan are in Washington, D.C., where Chris is on an extended location shoot for a movie called Crash Course. They have rented a brownstone in Georgetown as a place to live during the shoot, after which Chris plans to take Reagan to Europe until their new house in L.A. is constructed. Chris continually hears noises in the middle of the night emanating from the attic, which she assumes is nothing more than a small infestation of rats. Concurrently, Reagan, who had been an even-keeled child, is showing periodic signs of unusual behavior such as hyperactivity, swearing, lying, and lack of concentration. The GP, Dr. Klein, who can only surmise the symptoms are a manifestation of stress from the separation and temporary move to D.C. away from her home, diagnoses her condition solely based on the symptoms as hyperkinesia. Despite Dr. Klein and other physicians trying to determine and explain Reagan's increasingly abnormal and bizarre behavior with scientific theories, Chris begins to believe that there is more at play, especially as Reagan's behavior ultimately includes violence and acts of superhuman strength, which can only be classified as otherworldly, which Reagan herself could not have directly caused on her own, such as the ratless noises in the attic. Despite having no religious convictions, Chris is convinced that since there is some otherworldly force overtaking Reagan, a course of action is have that force, the demon, exercised from Reagan's being. Who contacts her is Father Damien Karras, who is also an MD who acts as a psychiatric counselor for the Catholic Church, who Chris, for whatever reason, had been drawn to as a person she has seen in the neighborhood. Father Father Karras is facing his own crisis of faith upon the recent death of his mother. He needs not only the permission of the church to proceed, but also his own faith that whatever he does will help as opposed to hurt Reagan. Who the church also sends is Father Lancaster Merrin, who 
may have a better understanding of what has possessed Regan and why it has chosen her, which is necessary to be able to combat it. The questions become whether fathers Marin and Caris have a strong enough faith to exercise the demon and what they are willing to do to achieve their mission. Ooh. Yeah. And so some of the cast members, which at the time weren't that popular, but from this movie definitely helped boost their career, was Linda Blair, mm-hmm. who played Reagan, Max von Sydow, who's Lancaster Marin, Ellen Bernstein, which is um, Chris McNeil, Jason Miller, who's Damian Carris, Jack McGowan, who's Burke Dennings, and Kitty Wynn, who's Sharon Spencer. So those are just a few of like the main characters that are in the movie that you will see. So I'm going to read you a few facts via Entertainment Weekly. Um, these are some creepy details from the scariest movie ever made. Ooh, I like it already. Yes. So one, so many pop-ups. One, the lost diaries from a true life exorcism. Friedkin says Blatty set out to write a nonfiction account of an exorcism that happened to a 13-year-old boy at a psychiatric clinic in 1949, but had to dramatize the story when it became too difficult to get specific details of what happened. Those who did speak to Blatty requested that the character be changed to a girl to help protect the identity of the boy who actually experienced the possession. Friedkin says that child grew up having no memory of the incident and went on to have an otherwise stable life. Friedkin said he recently retired from a long career out of all places, NASA. What? Yeah. The filmmaker never met that man, but spoke with family members who described telekinetic activity surrounding the child during his apparent possession. The family was Lutheran, and they went through all stages you see in the film. They went to doctors, clinics, and finally went back to their own pastor in the Lutheran church, who recommended they see a priest. It is not that anyone in the medical profession actually believed a demon was the problem, but they thought the power of suggestion might help the boy if he thought it was a true possession. A priest named Father William Bowdern reportedly performed the ceremony with a younger priest named William Halloran assisting. The incident was even mentioned in Halloran's 2005 obituary in the Washington Post. When The Exorcist was in the early stages of production, Friedkin met with Reverend Robert J. Henley, then president of Georgetown, who secretly passed him an older red, an old red folder with Halloran's diaries and other eyewitness accounts of this true life exorcism. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, second fact, you might assume the Roman Catholic Church would be viscerally opposed to seeing one of its more arcane rituals turned into fodder into uh, for a horror movie, but... Friedkin says many church officials supported the exorcist at the time. Not only did Georgetown's president, Father Henley, give them documents pertaining to the case, but the role of Father Dyer, the friend and confidant of the faith-challenged Damien Karras, was played by a real priest, Father William O'Malley, in his one and only screen role. Most of the people at the Wait, I didn't know that. I've seen the movie. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think, oh, wow, he really is playing it off like he's a real priest. Well, yeah, because he, he was. Surprise! Most of the people at the highest levels of the church accepted it totally because the Roman ritual of exorcism is still in the New Testament, said Friedkin. The director claims church officials later told him they credited the film for inspiring new applicants to be priests and nuns. After all, the priests are the heroes of the story, and the message of the film is that there are some matters of the soul that science and medicine just can't fix. The Cardinal in New York preached about it from the pulpit and said great things about it. The guy who was the head of the Jesuit order at the time, Father Pedro Arupe, who was headquartered in Milan, had his own print of it and would show it to his fellow priests and bishops and cardinals. 
Of course, not every cleric was a fan. The cardinal in Boston loathed it and wanted it to be banned. Billy Graham, who was not Catholic, denounced it from the pulpit and said, the devil is in every frame of this film. Now he examined every frame. Oh, he said now how he examined every frame, I don't know. <laughs> so then, um, three, what does the exorcist filmmaker believe? There may be truth to demons and possession, according to Friedkin, though he doesn't pretend to know for sure. I did this film because I believe in the story. This film was made by a believer. The film, to me, is about the mystery of faith. I know it's voted this and that horror film, but to me, it's about the mystery of faith. Certainly, a great many moviegoers believed it. The film caused a spike in people fearing they were possessed, and Friedkin said the movie's young, doubting priest, actor, and playwright Jason Miller would often be accosted by people seeking to have their personal demons cast out. Stop. That's... That's such, like, a fucking American-ass thing to do, too. Be like, oh, this is about me now. Yeah, yeah. I saw something happen. It must be me. Mm -hmm. It must be my problem. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. And even if you... So there's a quote that he says, and it goes, even if you call yourself an atheist, you have to think about it. None of us have any answers. And as Hamlet said to his friend Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt in your philosophy. Ooh, wait, I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So, finding, this is the fourth act, finding the exorcist demon child. So, the main character is a 12-year-old girl, an innocent corrupted by outside evil. But most 12-year-olds shouldn't even see the exorcist. Uh, Friedkin explains, I thought for a long time we could never make this film. We couldn't cast it. We threw out a net for about 2,000 young girls, and we couldn't find anybody who could even handle the subject matter. From his office at, get this ironic address, 666 Fifth Avenue in New York, Stop, no way. Yep, Friedkin and Blatty had given up and started auditioning actresses for who were in their late teens. Then, 13-year-old Linda Blair and her mother came in without an appointment, hoping to get a shot at the part. At that point, most of Blair's experience had been modeling clothes for advertisements. She sat down with her mother and said, and I said, Linda, do you know anything about The Exorcist? She said, yeah, I read the book. It's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and then does a whole bunch of bad things. (laughs) I said, like what? What kind of things does she do? He said, testing her. She told him, well, she hits her mother across her face and she pushes a man out her bedroom window and she masturbates with a crucifix. (laughs) This was the... Well? Yes. Uh, I think actually, was she 12 or 13? I just missed that. Uh, She was 13. Oh, okay. I look, so Friedkin explains, I look over and her mother is smiling. I asked, do you know what that means? And she said, yes, it's like jerking off, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) When the director took a deep breath and asked if she even knew what that meant, she replied, sure, don't you? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Dude, you're fucking cast right then and there. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hysterical. So, yeah, and, like, pretty much she explains how awesome to her like how awesome she was during the set and like how she this was the role that boosted her career and right now actually linda blair is she goes to a lot of um she goes to a lot of signings Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when she does signings her the money that she makes goes towards uh people against animal cruelty animal shelters so she 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 autographs for a good cause and she puts her name out there to 
fight for animal, a fight against animal abuse and things like that, which I think is awesome. Um, my dad's met her a couple times, and he was like, "She is no way." Yeah, he's like, "She is the nicest person ever." Um, again, like when he she, when he met her, you know, she was raising money for anti-animal abuse and she's very passionate about it and she took her time talking to everybody and she was super cool and my dad when I was younger because The Exorcist was one of the first scary movies I ever watched he Mm -hmm. bought me a figurine of the scene where she's crab walking down the stairs because it was my favorite yet scare like creepiest scene I've ever watched in cinematic history and so he Wait, bought Wait, I love that though. Yeah, he bought it for me when I was like 11, 12 years old, like a couple of years after I'd watched it. And then she signed it. So I have a signed autograph from Linda Blair of on the, of the figurine of her crab walking down the stairs. Wait, that's so fucking cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. My my dad has it somewhere like in a display case, but I don't have it right now. But it's super cool and it's one of my favorite figurines that I ever had. I love that. Yeah, so anyway, um, the other fact, fifth fact, carving out the self-mutilated face. You've probably seen the inter- internet prank where a friend tells you to do a complicated but seemingly like innocent maze, and then all of a sudden a shrieking nightmarish face appears. Well, usually the smiling shot is of Linda Blair in the demon makeup from The Exorcist. And even four decades later, it's a new definition of the phrase hard on the eyes. And you can thank Dick Smith for that. He is the legendary makeup man who received an honorary Oscar for that contribution to America's high blood pressure. (laughs) Instead of going for a straight monster look, he and Friedkin decided, why don't we try to do what looks like she she scarred herself and these stories will get worse and worse. Um, Smith did a lot of research on gangrious wounds and burn victims, and he brought me a lot of actual photos of people whom that had happened to. It's ugly work, but someone had to do it, right? So um, another changing face on The Exorcist. If you didn't know about Smith's expert makeup skills, you'd be forgiven for thinking Max von Sydow has held up really well over the past 40 years. Or the flip side, Max von Sydow looks like he has always been in his 80s. The truth is, the Swedish actor the Swedish actor at the time was only 43 when he made The Exorcist, but was aged to look much older. Friedkin says that uh, they chose him for the role, not just because he was a great performer, but because he looked like Father Bowdern, the real-life priest who performed the 1949 exorcism. His makeup took four hours each day. And for the opening scenes at a desert archaeology dig, which was shot in Mosul, Iraq, the heat soared above 120 degrees, which made the process all the more brutal for the actor. When we finished, they would peel it off, and the sweat would just pour out of his face. I mean, I can only imagine how horrendous his skin looked after all that filming. Oh, God. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, God. I'm picturing, like, dribbling sweat. Like, you know that uh, Key and Peele, like, gif or jif? Where he's got the sweat just like yes. pouring. Yes, that's like, exactly that's what, I'm what picturing he looks right like. Now. Mm-hmm. All right, so the seventh fact is a voice actress possessed by real personal demons. Aside from Blair's sickening makeup, the other key terrifying part of the character is its demon voice. Compare the before and after above as Blair's voice is replaced by something growling, reedy, and sinister. The final demon voice was created without any significant post-production alteration by an Academy Award-winning actress who went to dangerous lengths to create it. I had a lot of trouble revising how the demon would sound, Friedkin said. If you read the novel, it says the voice was terrible or it was frightening, but how do you actually achieve that? 
he came up with the notion that the voice should be gender neutral, neither male nor female. I remembered from Dramatic Radio this great actress, Mercedes McCambridge, who worked a lot with Orson Welles and the great radio performers. I remembered she had a kind of neutral sound. He tracked her down to a stage production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in Dallas and got, to, to, uh, got her to come see a rough cut of the film. Afterward, she said, Do you know anything about me? What do you know about me? I said, Only that you're a really great actress and I remember your voice from 25, 30 years ago. She said, Well, I'm practicing Catholic, she said, and I'm also a drunk. I went through AA, and I've had many deep psychological problems, and the church has been like a rock for me. It seemed like she was getting ready to turn down the project, but instead she told him, I know what you want me to do for this voice. Then she added, if I do that, I'm going to start drinking again. So McCambridge, who died in 2004, told Freakin she would need to swallow raw eggs to make her voice mucousy, start smoking cigarettes again, and also guzzle booze to get the languid, throaty croak necessary for the demon. Like, she was going ham for this I did role. not know that much could go into it. Mm-hmm. Since she was starting to fall off the bandwagon, uh, since she was starting to fall off the wagon to the Jew, the job, she had one other request. She said, I'm going to want these two priest friends of mine to be with me in the soundstage at all times. Friedman recalls, still with an element of disbelief, so I agreed to all of that. But Cambridge also performed most of the role while strapped to a chair, since that's how the character is positioned in the movie, even though she later gave interviews saying that didn't seem necessary to her. I tied her hands behind her back, and she would do the dubbing a line at a time, and often she would ask for more booze and more cigarettes. What would happen to her voice is you sometimes hear a wheezing sound in addition to the words that came out of her throat. You've experienced that when you've had a cold and you have a sore throat with the cough medicine, your throat will make several different pitches at the same time. That's what was happening to her. Interesting. It was a brutal... Come on, science! Mm-hmm. It was a brutal experience for McCambridge, however. She'd come off a take and then go to a couch in the back where there are these two priests who were there and she would collapse in their arms and burst into tears. Playing the demon pulled up some long-buried ones within herself. So those are just a few facts about what happened before and during what happened, like when The Exorcist was being filmed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot of other spooky, kooky, ooky things that happened besides just those facts. Um, I'm listening. So for one, um, Ellen Bernstein wrenched her back. So while on set, Ellen Bernstein suffered a permanent spinal injury during a stunt gone wrong while while shooting a scene where Reagan throws her from the bed. So if you remember, this is during like the exorcism part where Reagan's getting really fired up because she's possessed by the demon and she throws Mm -hmm. Ellen onto the bed. Yeah. Or throws her from the bed, I'm sorry. That part where the woman screams of pain, that was actually her really screaming because she broke her spine when that happened. And so they used that real scream of pain in the film. Those were all real raw emotions. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, I know that like filming stuff like that can get very intense sometimes. And like you, you read these stories about, you know, Oh, you know, it was like in 10 things I hate about you. Right. Julia Stiles, when she's reading her poem, wasn't supposed to cry. Really? Yeah. But those are her real tears. Like you hear about shit like that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, with all the mishaps, a Jesuit priest, Thomas M. King in Washington, D.C., where the movie was being filmed, asked for the, for the uh, set to be blessed because apparently it was 
getting really, really bad. Um, on top of that, Max von Sydow's brother died on the actor's first day of shooting, and Jason Miller's young son, Jordan, was struck and nearly killed by a man on a motorbike. He later recovered fully. The film was also the last role for actor Jack McGowan, who played the alcoholic filmmaker who meets a bad end. He finished the role, but died from the flu before the movie was released. Um, also, the entire set for the McNeil home caught fire and burned down, delaying film for six weeks. Reagan's demonic bedroom, meanwhile, remained untouched after the fires. The whole set was burned down except for Wait. that iconic demonic bedroom. That's there's that twenty five percent again. Yeah, yeah. Because fucking everything's flammable. Mm-hmm. That's why we're so scared of fire. That's why it's the coolest element. Like Jesus Christ. Yeah. So after they blessed the set, like I previously said, still during the f- film's Rome premiere, lightning struck a four hundred year old cross atop a nearby sixteenth century church. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of shit going on here. Yep, and so that are that is some of the curses on the set of The Exorcist and a few other facts you may not have known about the production on set of The Exorcist. Huh. Yeah. I didn't know so much went on. Me neither. When I was doing this, I knew a few things. Like, I knew about the woman actually had spinal damage. Yeah. Because I, I had watched a documentary on it. Um, but I, some of this other stuff I had no idea about until I did my research. The movie, That's you know. interesting. It's interesting how some of these movies, like, you you know, you hear about a lot, and it's almost like they use it, like, obviously, like, it's probably true. Like, if it's coming from cast members and stuff like that, and, oh, sorry. And, like, you know, from from multiple sources and shit, but I forget where I was going with this. The whole point saying? is it's spooky, kooky, ooky, weird Yeah, shit. exactly. And, right, that's what I was saying, was, you know, it's interesting how some of them, like, almost kind of, you know, have kept it on the DL, whereas other ones, like the next one I'm going to do, are pretty much known for their curses and experiences. Ooh, let's hear it. Okay, so my next movie, which is the first one, and that's why I asked you specifically about it, I think I asked you, um specifically about it is the movie poltergeist the 1982 movie classic yeah so i've heard about this multiple times and i'm sure you have too is the poltergeist cursed curse um so biography.com says released in 1982 the original poltergeist directed by toby hooper and produced by steven spielberg was an instant success and is considered to be a masterpiece of American horror cin- cinema. I'd agree. What about you? I I honestly I loved the Poltergeist. It never it was it was scary to me. It wasn't the scariest. I definitely think The Exorcist was a little more scary. Yeah, I But it had see that. that element of like spooky kooky ooky vibes. This one was kind of, I feel like Poltergeist was kind of like th- a thriller. You know mm-hmm. like it was scary and horror. But it was, like, in the genre of horror, you have, like, ghosts, you have thrillers. And I feel like this one's a little more of, like, a paranormal thriller, if that makes sense. thousand percent. Because there's, there's a lot of action in it, you know? Yeah. Not, not to say there's not in The Exorcist. Anyways. So the film focuses on the Freelings, a middle-class family led by youthful, dashing Craig T. Nelson, 
whose life is upturned when a number of paranormal and vicious events occur in their California home. And their daughter, Carol Ann, is abducted through her bedroom closet by a group of ghosts who are under the control of a monster demon called the Beast. After learning that their house sits atop a Native American burial ground, the Freelings spend their time attempting to retrieve Carol Ann and all the while stay sane as they get smacked around and terrorized. So when it comes to the curse, um, it is believed that it's cursed because four cast, a total of four cast members died during and soon after the filming of the series. What? Yeah. So, and one of them was really, really tragic, uh, really tragic. So the majority of the fuel for the alleged curse stems from the deaths of multiple cast members. In total, four cast members died during and soon after the filming. Two of these tragic deaths were highly unexpected and puzzling, leading many fans to speculate on the trilogy's eerie implications. So the first death we have is Heather or O'Rourke. So this one's really sad. Um, Carol Ann Freeling, the young focal point of the series, was played by Heather O'Rourke. Only six years old when the first Poltergeist film was released, O'Rourke captivated audiences with her stark blonde hair, doll-like appearance, and big, inquisitive eyes. Sadly, however, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. Mm. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction, and it was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. So what the truth is that, like, to kind of play devil's advocate and play, like, skeptic and everything is... If it's, you know, truly a congenital intestinal abnormality, like, that's pretty much something you're born with, right? Mm -hmm. But then what are the odds that you film this scary movie and all of a sudden it comes to fruition? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and what are, you know, and just her being cast in the film could also be the curse of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the next one is Dominique Dunn. Um, she played the original older sister, Dana Freeling, um, and she met an equally tragic and unforeseen fate in 1982. Or no, unforeseen fate, period. In 1982, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mess. Punctuation is key, folks. Honestly, Dunn separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dunn's house pleading for her to take him back. When she refused... Oh, God. Sweeney grabbed Dunn's neck and choked her until she was unconscious and then left her to die in her Hollywood home's driveway. Oh, shit. Sweeney was sentenced... What? Okay. Sentenced for murdering this woman. Six and a half years in prison. That's it? And get this. Released after three years and seven months. Bullshit. Yeah. Fucking bullshit. They probably pled like crime of passion. He's innocent. Bleep lord, bleep lord. Stupid justice for a man. Um, <laughs> Just like that. Yeah, exactly. That, those are the exact words. Actually, I read the court report. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So next we have Julian Beck and Will Sampson. Two other cast member deaths, while unfortunate, were not as unpredictable or mysterious. The evil preacher Kane from Poltergeist 2 was played by Julian Beck. In 1983, Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the second installment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which had a very slim survival rate. So, like, you look at these deaths and you think, okay, one is just unfucking real right? The woman just being, like, what was it, choked? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have the one with which, although we're not positive because, unfortunately, she passed away so we can't see, um, was, could have been a congenital disease, mm-hmm. right? And then you have, um, but, but this man, right? This movie came out in 1982, right? So a year after the original, and this guy wasn't even in the original yet, he was in the sequel, he gets diagnosed with lung cancer, right? Lung cancer. It's just crazy. It's it's like you if you want to try to connect it to the movie, Stomach you could cancer. you could say it's like manifestation of like the negative the negative vibes of the movie being yeah, manifested like into their lives. Yeah, honestly, that's what I'm thinking, and I'm wondering if like you know the content of the movie and just like this curse is to attract people who are ill right, or have someone, you know, in their lives who could be mentally ill, right, who, you know, like, it, it, it's attracting the weak and vulnerable. Ooh, that's a very creepy ass, like, um, it's a creepy way to look at it. And it's, like, almost, like, the smarter way to pull something like that off is to say, well, you know, his surgery had a low survival rate because he was getting a heart-lung transplant, and, you know, it wasn't her who died, it was her you know, X who killed her, right? It's so much easier than to kind of dismiss it. Mm-hmm. But when you look at these four deaths and more stuff that happened on set, it's like, okay, yeah, there's definitely something more here because two deaths is a coincidence, right? But four just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. So popsugar.com says that the whole ordeal began with human skeletons. So one of the most famous scenes features... Joe Beth Williams' character, Diane, falling into the family's pool, and it's filmed with filled with skeletons. And I remember seeing this scene for the first time, and I was like, holy shit, like, that's scary as hell. Like, you know how you have that unrealistic fear of there being a shark in, like, the community pool? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I saw that, and, like, it's, like, all that shit, and I'm like, holy shit, like, there's skeletons <laughs> in the pool now, too. Sharks and skeletons. Fucking great. So... You might not know that those skeletons were actually real. What? Yeah, but the actors didn't. Quote, oh, my God. A quote from Joe Beth Williams. In my innocence and naivete, I assumed that these were not real skeletons. She said um, in an interview for TV Land. I assumed they were prop skeletons made out of plastic or rubber. No shit. I found, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, as one would do. But I found out, as did the crew, that they were using real skeletons because it's far too expensive to make fake skeletons out of rubber. Oh, my God. You know what? That would be me finally getting a role in a movie after donating my body to science. 
<laughs> that is going to be your big break, Lily. Right? That, that, that that's is so it. funny. Like, and my grandkids are going to be like, you see my grandma? She's got some bone structure. Can't tell the rest because she's been dead for a year. Oh, God. Those cheekbones are lit. <laughs> yes. So finally, in an effort to further creep out everyone involved, Samson, the real-life medicine man who passed away due to circumstances mentioned above, performed an authentic exorcism after shooting wrapped up one night. So there was, so on the sequel, in the sequel, there was a real live exorcism performed on set. Wow. Yeah, so that could have either, like, and think about it, like, it's quite possible that then there was more activity that wasn't discussed. Yeah, for sure. You know, or they were preventing activity, which, you know, could have stirred more stuff up. Like, who, literally, there's not a whole lot of documentation, like, on what happened. Like, there isn't, because Annabelle Comes Home is such a recent film that it was easy to find stuff on that, because, like, they did the interview um, with McKenna Grace, kind of as in, or Grace McKenna, um, as an advertisement, Mm -hmm. you know, to, and she came out and, like, she told all her stories and all the details in an online article, right? Because that's just how we do shit now. Yeah. Um, but all of this information is, like, rather old, like, from a while back. Not, like, a while back, but a while back. So it's kind of harder to find, like, a whole-ass article on this. Oh, for sure, yeah. Times are so different. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's what I have for Poltergeist. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Ah, all right. Well, now I have to watch Poltergeist during the spooky kooky ooky season i'm gonna take all that into consideration my roommates were last night because they were watching american horror story but they were talking about what was the movie i think it might have been annabelle no 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 it was it they were talking about it and it chapter two um because my roommate has a losers club sweatshirt oh that's so cute i love that i know it's awesome and um so she has this loser club club sweatshirt and we were like oh my god like next time we're all free we should watch like you know as like we should watch a scary movie like once a week for spooky season and i was like if i'm around i'm so in oh a thousand percent now i want to join in on that i'm about to call out of work and be like hey sorry i have to watch it sorry annabelle's on this Can't is come an emergency work. sorry <laughs> all right so sorry sorry for the side note what is your next story all good. you have so much more information than me too i was just like Duh, that, no, that, the first one i did it just happened to have a fuck ton of information um but these next two have a good amount of information but it's definitely not as long um okay. the second one that i'm going to be talking about is from the movie the omen So, The Omen is a 1976 American-British supernatural horror film directed by Richard Donner, written by David Seltzer, and starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, David Warner, Harvey Spencer Stevens, Billy Whitelaw, I was about to say White Claw, (laughs) Patrick... (laughs) claws when you're drinking claws. Yes, at Patrick Troughton, Martin Benson, and Leo McKern. Its plot follows Damien Thorne, a young child replaced at birth by an American ambassador unbeknownst to his wife after their biological child dies shortly after birth. As a series of mysterious events and violent deaths occur around the family as Damien enters childhood, they come to learn that he is, in fact, the prophesized Antichrist. Oh, shit. Yeah, so this information about the curse on set I found via Film Daily, so check them out. Uh, In 1975, 
lives were changed forever when the Omen started production in London. Trying to replicate the success just seen by The Exorcist, producer Harvey Bernard, or Bernhard thought it would be easy money. If only he knew what the future had in store for him and his entire cast and crew. The Omen is regarded as the most cursed film set in history, and it's no surprise why. With the crazy circumstances surrounding the accidents on set, maybe Bernard should have listened to The Omen's creator, Robert Munger, when he said the film would in fact be cursed. Let's dive into what exactly happened on this fucking crazy-ass set. So I'm first, listening. There was deadly animals left and right. Obviously, we remember the uh, iconic cemetery scene where Greg Peck is running away from vicious dogs. To make it look convincing, a stuntman, a stuntman was in fact used, covered up in plenty of protective clothing to, to save him. But as they were filming the scene, the Rottweilers not only bit through the stuntman's protective gear, but also wouldn't stop when told to do so by their trainer. Now, mind oh, you... fuck no. Yeah, mind you, on these type of sets, these trainers are on top of their dogs and the dogs are very well trained this is not something to fuck around especially with rottweilers rottweilers when trained you know they have a very like they can bite down um on the more hairier side of things the trainer responsible for the baboons that attacked damien and his mother died the day after filming that scene yeah stop wait that's weird oh like there were multiple multiple attacks and yeah multiple like the trainer the animal trainer had died after that scene dude my fucking 2020 ass was just like oh my god did they get coronavirus (laughs) i'm so stuck in this pain dude coronavirus has brainwashed us all wait maybe the anti-maskers are right probably not not. okay (laughs) next so while his so while this um this trainer's death was involved uh, involved a tiger and had nothing to do with the set of the omen people do say that the curse is what truly killed him so this guy had to deal with a baboon attack and then actually was killed by a tiger of his on a like just on, in a, on a different note besides the omen but it happened oh. the day after filming that scene of the baboons that attack Damien and his mother. That's just, it's I fucking... I didn't know this guy knew Carol Baskin. <laughs> Facts. Dude, Facts. she's on Dancing with the Stars. Oh, my God. I saw clips of it, and I am so happy they used Eye of the Tiger for her first song. Okay, I have her next two songs. Are you ready? Oh, uh, let's hear them. Okay. It Wasn't Me by Shaggy. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> and the Cell Block Tango from Chicago. <gasps> Iconic. If he you don't do that... Common. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. Oh, my God. I hope she does those. Or it's just Dancing with the Stars will just get canceled. Anyway. Exactly. I'm going to tweet them and suggest the next two songs. Should I tweet them from the podcast? I'm going to. Do it. Do it. Follow us on podcast. On On podcast. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at JGT Podcast. Okay. So the next thing. So that was the animal side of the curses on the set of The Omen. Then there was lightning from the gods. So, just like the lightning strike on the Passion of the Christ, God was to blame for it. Except this time, there were three times the crew was praying to God over lightning. On three completely separate occasions, lightning struck planes carrying cast and crew members. Thankfully, no accidents resulted from these strikes, but it was definitely a close call for all three. 
Mm. Lightning literally I, struck their plane. Yeah, I don't fucking like that shit at all. Mm-mm. Then there was the IRA bombings. Anyone with a knowledge of London history knows about the building bombings blamed on the Irish Republican Army. While this technically isn't a part of the Omen curse, the fact that the cast and crew survived not one, but two of these bombings isn't a coincidence. Then there is the decapitated in a car accident. Arguably the most creepy accident of all the Omen curses is the decapitation scene that not only happens in the film, but happened to special effects designer John Richardson. While working no on an, yeah, while working on another film, he was with his wife Liz Moore, where he where the two got into a head-on collision. While Richardson was knocked unconscious but survived, Moore was decapitated when a tire went flying through the window. When he came to, Richardson realized how eerily related the accident was to the one in the Omen. And this is the part that gives me the chills. To top it all off, Richardson also claims he saw a sign on the side of the road saying the town of Omen. O-M-M-E-N was 66.6 kilometers away. There's no way that's true. Oh, but in fact it is. Fucking horrifying. Yeah. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. See, if I, okay, if I had done a movie that I thought was cursed and I saw something similar to the title of the movie, right, that was, I, I turn around. Well, I guess they were just driving it, and, and they didn't realize it. They weren't paying attention to the signs. Oh, true. There wasn't probably no Google Maps when it's like, turn on to Almond Road. Or yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you're ju- you just got into a head-on collision, so the last thing you're looking at is a fucking sign. And that's when fair. he came to, that's where he ended up seeing the sign in the 666 kilometers away. I am not a fan. And so that is the curse of the set of The Omen. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Damn, I didn't know so much happened there. I remember um, my babysitter, shout out to Celia, um, she used to, she would come over, like, in the, I think it was the summers when my mom was working when I was a kid, when she was working for my grandpa, and um, my dad would work too. So in the summers, when we were off from school, she would spend, like, the mornings with us, mm-hmm. and I I remember like regularly waking up and coming out of my room and Celia would be on the couch watching like spooky movies until we woke up and then she'd change them. But I remember her watching the omen one day and that was like the first time I heard the word. And I don't know why I fucking remember this, but I remember sitting there and being like, Celia, what's an omen? <laughs> and she'd be like, and she was like, it's like a bad sign. And I was like, because she was like kind of like, she wasn't like goth, but she would wear like the big clunky, also because it was the early 2000s, like black shoes mm. and like she had like all the ear piercings. Oh, and, okay. And and like, like the, you know, the ripped jeans and shit. Like she was awesome. And she would always watch these like scary movies until my brother and I came downstairs. I love her and I've never even met her. Oh my God, she's great. Her boyfriend, her boyfriend drove like, you know, those like short school buses? Mm-hmm. So he drove, like, a refurbished one of those, and it had, like, um, a chess table in it. That's amazing. Wait, this was, was his cool. to own? Yeah, that was, it was his. Like, that's what he that's drove. That's hysterical. I love that. <gasps> Actually, I think they got married. Yeah, I think they're married now. Oh. Anyways, sorry, sorry for the side note, but, yeah, I remember her watching The Omen, because I remember thinking it was just, like, a weird fucking word. Like, I don't know why I remember that. Yeah, so guys, if you haven't watched The Omen or you have watched The Omen already, watch it again. 
during spooky season. Yeah, especially watching it with, like, all of these. I want, okay, I think that we deserve, like, if anyone listens to this podcast and thinks, like, it would be a good idea to watch these movies, like, rent them, we should get a cut of the profit that pay-per-view makes. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, Use non-existent like, discount code JGT. Yes, we should reach out to them. Rebecca, you do it. You're the marketing genius. <laughs> I'm just, I, I just kind of show up. Yeah, you know what? I, uh, craziness, craziness. Speaking of marketing, we have merch now. We'll get into that at the end of the episode. Yeah, definitely. Because that, that's kind of a big deal. I feel like we probably should have talked about that in the beginning, but we were too caught up in pumpkin spice lattes and guys, like, you know, complimenting your bathroom skills. Bathroom skills. skills. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities, guys. Exactly. All okay, right, Lily, so what's your last one? My last one is... Oh, shit. I hate it when it does this shit. Like, I go to scroll down, and it thinks I want to edit, and then I get all this shit that I don't want. Like, I just want the screen. Okay. So, the next one is the Amityville Horror. Ooh. So, there was... It came out... The original, original, came out in the 70s, I think? That sounds um, right. That sounds right, right? Yeah, 70s, 80s, kind of. Yeah. And then there was a remake in 2005. Mm-hmm. And shit happened on both sets. Ooh, let's hear it. I didn't even know you were going to do Amity. I didn't know it was cursed. I love it. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot on this, but I figured, like, it was a blockbuster, and the first one is such a classic. Mm-hmm. The second one's okay, but, like, there's Ryan Reynolds in it, so it's great. Yeah. Um, so I figured, like, why not, like, do... So there's not this that much on it, but what there is is Spooky Kooky Yuki. Okay, let's hear it. So um, this is from 13thfloor.tv. So, directed by Stuart Rosenberg and known as one of the many horror films based on a true story, Amityville Horror is about a real-life family who was shot and killed by their eldest boy, Ronald DeFeo. And doesn't, real quick, doesn't DeFeo mean of ugly? DeFeo means ugly. Um, I guess... DeFeo? Yeah, well, I mean, Feo's ugly, so, in general, but... I wonder if it's like short for something and then they Americanized it. <laughs> like my I don't like know. okay, my like my grandmother's last name, like she shortened like well she didn't. Her family shortened it because they were like, it's not American enough. I don't know why they Just were like that. anyways. So what many can only speculate about is what actually led to Ronald DeFeo to commit this heinous crime. Some say that he was possessed and heard voices. But to what extent does that drive a person to kill his own family? The story behind the Amityville horror still bewilders people to this day. Yes, it does. Actor James Brolin, who plays the father, George Lutz, in the original film, was hesitant about accepting the role. After reading the novel, he arrived to a very tense part when suddenly his pants fell off a hanger. I thought he was going to say his pants fell off him. I was like, what? Dude, when I read that, that's what I thought it said, too. When I, like, skimmed this before I, like, decided on it, it was like his pants fell, and I was like, his pants fell down at the script reading? That's fucking weird. (laughs) So, no, so he's reading it, and all of a sudden his pants were on a hanger, and he just, like, fell off. And he caught, this caused him to jump out of his chair in terror. Understandable. Yeah. So after this occurrence, he agreed to take the role, believing that there was 
something to the story. There was also another incident which occurred as a lamp fell over, um, I believe this was on set, with no cause to be known. It just kind of toppled over. No cord pulled, like no one tripped on the cord, Mm -hmm. no one was like changing the light bulb, like it just fell over. Just said, gravity, you win, bitch. Like, (laughs) that's it. Also, one night, Ed and Lorraine Warren, the real-life couple, like the real Ed and Lorraine Warren from the Conjuring movies, they investigated the scene by placing cameras all around the house. They found in one of the pictures a young boy with glowing white eyes. Oh, creepy. Yeah, many have said that the boy is the ghost of John Matthew DeFeo, the youngest of the children. There are many conspiracies on whether it's John DeFeo, a photographer, or a demon revealing itself as a human, or something else entirely. To this day, there is still no confirmation. Oh, God. That's so creepy. Yeah. So while the Warrens were investigating at the Amityville house, they came home to horror in their own home. One night, Ed was in his office, the latch at the end of the passageway snapped open, and he heard heavy footsteps approaching his office. But nothing ever reached, I think. Yeah, no, just he heard heavy footsteps approaching and nothing ever happened after that. It's like kind of a sign of like you you put your nose where it shouldn't belong. Exactly. Like and and that's, I think, part of being like a paranormal. Like, obviously, like if you're like a psychic or a clairvoyant or something like you can't control that. Yeah. But, you know, if you choose to be a paranormal investigator, like, you always run the risk of, like, taking your work home with you. Even psychics and mediums, though, especially those that are, like, aren't born with it, but they practice the craft, they have certain things that they do to protect themselves from those evil spirits that you need to just do to, I mean, and, and nothing's ever guaranteed. Like, there is still that chance. Like, when you're doing things like that, where you're, you're experimenting with the unknown, there mm-hmm. are unknown consequences along with that. Yeah. That's, that I think to me would be scarier is like, you know, saying, okay, there are like, I can, you know, if you sage or, you know, sprinkle holy water or wear a cross or crucifix and like, you feel like that helps you, you know, or, you know, say a prayer or, you know, something like that, like, or display like some kind of like sacred something. I don't know where I'm going with this but if you do any of that like you still run the risk of something greater than that oh something more powerful than you know what you're doing oh does that make sense yeah I mean it's an it's a fun topic to explore but when you actually are trying to communicate with spirits and things like that that's why just common folk that don't actually have the education behind it stay away from it do not mess with things that are in the unknown. Leave it to the pros. Yeah. Because I feel like they've got a better grip on, you know, what on aftercare and, mm-hmm. you know, preparation. You know, like if you're just sitting around like, hey, let's fuck with this Ouija board. Like, mm, better not. not. Yeah. In the words of Fat Amy, sometimes I think I could do crystal meth. But then I think, mm, better not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Some stuff happened also during the 2005 remake. Ryan Reynolds, who plays George Lutz, which was Brolin's character, um, reported that he and other crew members 
kept waking up at 3.15 a.m. every day. Oh, no. Which was the time that Ronald DeFeo murdered his parents yes. and four siblings. Yes. So it's not even like, oh, you know, 3 a.m., 3.15 a.m., 4 a.m. Like, it's not even like that's why it's spooky. Like, it is. But then you have the added weight of, holy shit, that's when Ronald DeFeo, like, did the deed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and in in the movie, I don't know too much about the true history, but in the movie, he, I believe, wasn't already awake. He, I think he got out of bed and then killed them. I haven't seen the movie in years, though, but I, I think, yeah, correct sure. me if I'm wrong, on Twitter at JGT Podcast or email us, justwillythingspodcast at gmail.com, but I think that he, like, wakes up in the middle of the night and is, like, you know, has some kind of moment where he decides to kill them. Yeah. So this happens to Ryan's character in the film. Just before filming began, and just before filming began, a dead body washed up on the shore by the film set, which Ah. was completely bizarre. Yeah. So there's a lot of activity happening. And I wonder also, you know, if the dead body, like, kind of, if there was, I know this is weird and, like, kind of a stretch, but, like, I think a lot, right? And when I was, like, doing my, you know, like, research and copying and pasting, I wondered if kind of there was a spirit guiding that body to that spot because there were people there. Maybe they're like, yeah. Oh, you, oh, you wanted a twist, eh? That's a good, that's a nice twist. I like that. So, yeah, that's what I have for the Amityville Horror, both the original and the 2005 remake. And uh. that's the house also. Is that also the house that had the cameras around it? You can watch the live stream. Um... I'm pretty sure that they've done that before with the Amityville. I don't know if they do it all year round, but I'm pretty sure that they've done that before. But they did it at one point, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. They did it at the Conjuring House, too. The Conjuring House, that's what I was thinking of. I think they that's did it at Amityville, too, though. Yeah, they probably did. All right, all right, sorry. So, Rebecca, what is your final movie set story? All right, last but not least, I'm going to be doing The Curse of the Set of Rosemary's Baby. So, Rosemary's Baby is a 1968 American psychological horror film written and directed by Roman Polanski based on the 1967 novel of the same name by Ira Levine, or Ira Levin. The cast features Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, Ralph Bellamy, Angela Dorian, Clay Tanner, and in his feature film debut, Charles Grodin. The film chronicles the story of a pregnant woman who suspects that an evil cult wants to take her baby for use in their rituals. So this Vanity Fair article was titled The Most Cursed Hit Movie Ever Made. And it pretty much just talks about how Levin writing this book, his process of it leading up to the production, how it kind of seems like there were like red flags and kind of where the curses could have started from. So, like this, like all good scary stories, this one starts off very ordinary. In 1965, struggling as always for his next big idea, Levin looked no further than his pregnant wife in their New York apartment. He plopped every would-be parent's feelings of anxiety atop an imminent historical moment. 
1966, or 666, a.k.a. the number of the beast, Holy <laughs> shit! as predicted in the New Testament's book of Revelation. Religious counterculture was already swirling. The Church of Satan was soon to be established in San Fran, and in April 1966, Time magazine had just famously asked on its cover, Is God Dead? Levin went even darker. What if he took the birth of Jesus and turned the whole tale upside down? What if God was not only dead, but the devil lived? A Jewish atheist, Levin nonetheless wrote with mounting reservations. He was sort of taking notes, he said, of his wife's progress alongside Rosemary's, but flatly refused to let her read the manuscript. His fears were both personal and professional. The book was blasphemy, perhaps, and Levin feared backlash, blacklisting from publishers, or must much worse. Published 50 years ago, or about 50 years ago, Rosemary's Baby was instead immediately declared perfect, the best horror novel ever crafted, a modern masterpiece. Rave reviews ran in every paper. Truman Capote likened Levin to, James, uh, to Henry James. Four million copies flew off store shelves, and Levin, unlike, not unlike the greedy antagonist in one of his own success-obsessed works, was granted the wildest level of literary success that he might ever have hoped for. A year later, the success only continued with the movie, directed by Roman Polanski, an, a European auteur uh, looking for his own big Hollywood break. More impeccable reviews. Roger Egbert wrote Polanski, outdoes Hitchcock, Liz Smith in Cosmopolitan calls it sheer perfection. Variety praised just about everyone involved. Polanski had triumphed. Star Mia Farrow was outstanding. Um, just everyone a part of this project was just praised for their work. Soon after, that's when the curse began. The first unlucky soul was Kamita. Details of his death are still scarce, but Polanski told it this way. In autumn of 1968, then 37-year-old Kamita was roughhousing at a party when he fell off a rocky escarpment into a four-month coma. The very same affliction Levin's witches used to kill Rosemary's suspicious friend in the book. Kamita never regained consciousness and died in Poland the following year. So hmm. this guy that was a part of the film died the same way as one of the witches uh, and one of the same afflictions Levin's witches used to kill Rosemary's suspicious friend. No, that's a method actor. Yes. Sorry, that was me. That's I fucked up. That. That's fucked up. But kind of, I mean, too coincidentally true. Yeah. In April 1969, producer William Castle, sick with worry from the hate mail he received constantly, was suddenly stricken with severe kidney stones. While delirious in the hospital, he hallucinated scenes from the film and was said to have yelled, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife. Castle recovered, just barely, and never made a Hollywood hit again. Mm. Then there's Polanski's fate, told and retold into legend, even by him. Polanski had relocated to California alongside his new girlfriend, actress Sharon Tate, who was fresh off her first movie role and as a witch in Eye of the Devil, just before filming began. She had gunned hard for the role, the lead role in Rosemary's Baby, but Paramount cast Mia Farrow. Tate instead loitered around the set, appearing uncredited like a ghost in the background of Mos Rosemary's young people-only party scene. And Wait, why is that me, though? <laughs> why is that me? Like, in case I need an extra, in case someone fucking falls. Oh, uh, did, you, did, did, did you need something? Did I just happen to remember all the lines, so we oh, could just start I from thought, the top. I thought the director who didn't cast me said something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyway... She became increasingly, like, um, so and let me start over from the sentence. Tate instead loitered around the set, appeared uncredited like a ghost in the background of Rosemary's young people-only party scene, and, say some, becoming increasingly obsessed with the occult. 
Many years later, a friend quoted her in print as having said, the devil is beautiful. Most people think he's ugly, but he's not. Polanski last saw Tate, by then his wife and very pregnant, in July 1969, noting in his autobiography a grotesque thought he had at the time. You will never see her again, he wrote. Tate was then brutally murdered on August 8th by the Manson family, as was their unborn son, all while Rosemary's baby still lingered in theaters. Unable to make sense of such a tragedy and captivated by the stories of the Manson family, the public took to Satan in curses as the only explanation. Internet fanatics like Guy Woodhouse, Polanski made his young wife a blood sacrifice for his still untouchable status in Hollywood and beyond. Others maintain the Manson murders were a mere moment in a grand satanic conspiracy scored by the Beatles. The White Album was written largely at an Indian meditation with Mia Farrow in attendance. The song title, Helter Skelter, albeit misspelled, was scrawled in blood at the crime scene. And a dozen years later, Lennon was assassinated across the street from the Dakota, the gabled landmark where Rosemary's Baby was filmed. Wait, I didn't know that this had so many connections to this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, when I hear Rosemary's Baby, what I think of is that episode of America's Next Top Model where Tyra Banks wants to give the beauty queen Cassandra, who has like three feet of hair, she wants to give her a Rosemary's Baby cut, but they just give her like a choppy cut. And she's like, I said Mia Farrow, Rosemary's Baby. So they're taking more off in the salon after Cassandra already cried for after <laughs> cutting and dyeing her hair. Like she had a meltdown and they did it. And then they wanted to send her back. So she quit the show. This was like in the be- like one of the beginning cycles, right? Oh, yeah. This is like cycle three. Yeah. I feel like I remember this vaguely. She's like, she says to like, uh, Jay, who was it? Jay, the the um, not the photographer. Jay, the guy with like the frosted hair, the gray hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. She, he said, "She's like, yeah, I'm not cutting my hair." And he was like, "Okay, then get off." I remember set. this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry. Okay, sorry, sorry. So that's what I think of. I did not know that it had so many ties to like the Beatles and John Lennon and mm-hmm. the Manson murders. Like, I didn't even know that. Yes, ma'am. Holy shit! Learn something new every day. But. If we're going to talk about Rosemary's Baby being actually cursed, how did Ira Levin dodge his fate, the writer? He didn't, of course. While Levin never fell from a cliff to his his dramatic demise, he suffered a more fitting kind of poetic justice. First, his marriage crumbled, with the divorce finalized in 1968. Notoriously private, Levin never gave details of the breakup, though the stuff for wives published four years later maybe says it all. He never rode the Rosemary's baby wave into Hollywood, perhaps a blessing in disguise, but he certainly got the fame he sought. Catholics in particular bombarded him with ongoing criticism, as did the Catholic Church, which very publicly slapped the C rating, condemned, onto the film for its mockery of religious persons and practices. Oh, shit. Yeah, Levin didn't believe in witches or curses, he said over and over again, yet fear grew in him just the same. On a 1980 episode of The Dick Cavett Show, appearing alongside a gregarious Stephen King, Levin sits quiet, pensive, and insecure. I don't recall being scared at all, he said in his childhood horror inspirations. Now, I am terrified. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. But his Yeah, fam- I, I can imagine where, you know, where someone would be terrified by that kind of stuff, you oh, know? like seeing everything around you kind of crumbling, and yet you're the <laughs> only one not being touched, just so you think, and then all of a sudden certain things are happening to you and you can't help but think, is that connected to the yeah. curse? Make makes sense. Mm-hmm, 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 yeah. So, um, 
But his family is adamant that their regret was, wasn't in the book. It was in something else, says novelist David Morrell, co-founder of the International Thriller Writers Organization and former University of Iowa professor of English, who wrote a new intro to Rosemary's Baby for its 50th birthday reissue. After decades of endless copycats and spinoffs and made-for-TV movies that made the book feel like a campy caricature, Levin grew seemingly disdainful of his defining work. He wrote less and less to uh, less. He wrote less and to less acclaim. Rarely did interviews and stopped mingling among the New York literary circles he once so desperately wanted to be a part of. If Levin really experienced or enjoyed his literary fame, he didn't say so. I never once heard him comment on his career or what had happened. Said Morell, "I'm just, in, I am just intuiting that he had to know he was a success, but I'm not sure he did." So that is just. Some of the curse of Rosemary's Baby and the connections amongst people involved in Rosemary's Baby. Well, that was very interesting because I never, you know, I've honestly never even seen the film. But I I feel like I had heard about, you know, things going wrong, but I did not know that it was to that extent. And I certainly did not know about all the connections between the movies and the movie and like the Beatles and you know where John Lennon was shot and the Manson murders like I had no idea that there was any kind of you know connection to that absolute craziness bananas yeah on that note that concludes this episode of just ghoulie things talking about cursed films um before we sign off we do have to talk about something we probably should have talked about in the beginning but if you've listened to all this just wait a couple minutes because we're going to be talking about our newly released merch yay so yeah i'm so excited we finally were able to get merch out onto a site um where you guys can order onto uh t public we have our own merch store on there not only do we sell t-shirts long sleeves hoodies crew sweaters uh, mugs, stickers, magnets, phone cases, masks with our logo. But if you also look at our storefront, we also have other designs there that you can buy as well. Um, but of course, we want you to, you know, rock our JGT logo, most importantly. Of course. But we do have other options for you, especially now that spooky season's uh, just around the corner, currently happening right now, whatever you want to claim. Uh, we need some, we need some. We need some Halloween t-shirts and things like that. So we have all of that on our merch store that you can check out. Some funny ones, some creepy ones, some just cool ones that you can wear all year round. Um, And if you buy any, screenshot what you've purchased or when you get it, take a picture and tag us on Instagram at... Just Ghoulie Things Podcast. We would love to see our boo things in our merch. Oh my god, I'm literally, the first time I see it, probably going to like get goosebumps and cry. because Just because of who I am as a person. Lily, what are you getting from the store? Um, I'm thinking I'm going to get, well, I still have uh, some stickers, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking I'm going to get probably the mask. Yeah, me too. And, well, definitely, I'm thinking I'm going to get the crew neck because mm-hmm. I love a good crew neck. I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting the crew neck too. And probably a pillow. Cute, cute. And a mug. Cute, yeah. I'm getting the mug too. I'm definitely getting oh, no, a t-shirt. Oh no, you know what? And a notebook. Fuck it. And a notebook, so you can write and do ASMR with the notebook. Yes, JGT notebook ASMR. Yes. Oh, so, I'm all about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we get our merch, we'll definitely be taking pictures of it and showing you guys how it looks. So I definitely did my research before I decided to use this 
website. Um, I check their tag photos of people that have used their source. Other podcasts use this storefront as well. Mm-hmm. They have amazing reviews. So and you, there's so many different options. If you click on a certain product, you can get whatever type of t-shirt material you want, any color. I mean, there's like so many colors for each product. It's amazing. So it's really, it's out. great because it's still us, but you can make it your own. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. That should be, that should be the store's like motto. I'm a genius. Write it down in your non-existent JGT notebook and we will put that on the merch <laughs> store. <laughs> All right, Lily, do you have anything else to say before we wrap it up with the socials? Um, I think you guys are just all jealous that I'm really good at going to the bathroom and you're not. <laughs> Whenever you use the bathroom, just think, what would Lily do? <laughs> WWLD. <laughs> That's going to be on a t-shirt. All right. All right. Well, yes. So what are our socials, Rebecca? Follow us on Instagram at just Lily Things Podcast. Personal Instagrams at Rebecca Ruber and at Lily Baldessari. Twitter. JGT Podcast. Facebook like page. Just Lily Things Podcast. Facebook private group. Which is where all the good shit goes down. Just Lily Things Podcast. Donate to our Patreon. Just Lily Things Podcast. And if you or someone you know has a paranormal experience you'd like to share in our show, feel free to email us at JustGoodThingsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, Boo Things. If you want to buy merch, go onto our Instagram. You can click on our link in our bio, or you could just search up tpublic.com and search Just Ghouly Things Podcast. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening again, and we will talk to Boo next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.